Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar-Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Listeners, I am so delighted to bring you this episode of the podcast with James Nestor. James is the author of the book Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. And when I first picked up the copy of this book, I I didn't really genuinely know what to expect. I You've probably heard me talk about uh, breathing techniques and breathing therapy and the benefits of breath with people like Dr. Rangan Chatterjee and Dr. Andrew Weil on this podcast. But I had no idea the experience I was going to have reading this book. And it was just utterly wonderful. And it really is an experience to read a book about breathing, because as well as taking in everything that the author is saying, you are also unbelievably mindful about your breath in and your breath out. And I learned so much and there were so many things that I just assumed and took for granted when it comes to when it comes to breathing. When you read this book, you realize that actually it's a lot more complicated and there are ways in which we can actually improve it. And I feel like that's where I should stop and just let James take over because the amount of research he has done is just huge and again, utterly, utterly fascinating. But I would say that It's always my intention to bring you guests on this podcast that I feel are going to add something, add value to your lives, whether it's information or entertainment. And this is one of the podcasts that I have been so delighted to share because I feel that everybody could benefit from hearing what James has to say and what he has learned about breath and breathing through his extensive research. So I'm so, so happy to bring you this episode. So we're going to cut straight to it. James is a journalist and author, and this is definitely something that he has specialized in. He has been a guinea pig in some of these experiments. And he, so he's lived it firsthand. So he, as much as he's analyzed the data, he has also been part of the experiment and been part of the science too. So it's a really fascinating insight into our breath and our breathing and as a special gift to you if you stay tuned to the very very end of this episode there's actually an audio clip from the book read by James himself that just gives you a little bit of a taste of what you can expect from this brilliant book breath the new science of a lost art I have been talking about this to people ever since I read it I've been talking about it like a teenage girl who's just fallen in love with somebody from Beverly Hills 90210 I bring it up in every single conversation I have because it has just blown me away. So I really, really hope that you enjoy this episode with James and maybe even decide to read the book for yourself and get the kind of experience that I had too. So thank you so much. And without any further ado, I am delighted to welcome James Nestor onto The Emma Gunn Show. James Nestor, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Now, I'm so interested and intrigued to speak to you because if uh, if anyone's listening to this and I say, are you breathing correctly? They're probably going to be like, well, yeah, of course I am. It's a default system. I don't need to think about it. If I asked if you were sitting correctly, a few of us might straighten up a little bit. But you have done so much research and investigated the art of breathing and that means that when I read your book it was a very bizarre experience (laughs) do you get this a lot from people that people are reading the book and also thinking very very carefully about how they're breathing well just imagine writing a book about this stuff for three years it makes you a complete neurotic so hopefully I'm I'm over that hump and starting to do this stuff by habit but the answer is absolutely um for and that was the intention which is why the chapters were set up that way 
to, to allow you to first identify the problems and then have the foundation on how to breathe properly. And, you know, what you said as well is it's totally true. Few of us ever think about our breathing. I certainly didn't until I started researching this book. And then I realized that, you know, how we breathe, the ways in which we bring in that air and exhale it are in many ways as important as what we eat and how much we exercise to our health, to our longevity, to our sleep, on and on and on. And this is just something that a lot of people recently hadn't really been talking about, even though for thousands and thousands of years, breath was considered a medicine in so many other cultures. Well, even, I mean, I do uh, yoga after this, I'll be getting the mat out. And uh, my yoga teacher online refers to, it just says, what if your breath is your spirit? And and breath and spirit were synonymous for for so many different cultures from from prana from uh, even Christian uh, ancient Christian cultures to Judaism I mean on and on breath and spirit were were one one thing together and so there's the spiritual side of it but there's also the biological side of it and I think that many of these cultures probably appreciated it as a spiritual practice because of its benefits biologically, how, how much it allowed them to restore and balance their health. And I think one of the things that really shocked me very, very early on when I was reading the book was that I had always assumed that uh, humans were evolving like, for example, to use a modern analogy, where evolution was like uh, Apple upgrades. And that every time, every time we evolved in some way, it was because we were adapting to our environment in a, so that we would be a better able to navigate it. So it was a bit of a shock to realize, actually, when it comes to breathing specifically, we've gone backwards. We've evolved backwards. And this was a complete shock to me as well, because I learned that same thing in school, how many years ago that was, was that evolution meant survival of the fittest, right? Only the best people survived. And so... By so many generations of these stronger, faster, smarter people, we were able to become a, a stronger, faster, smarter species. But if you look at what's happened, you know, especially to, to human culture right now, that's absolutely not true. And you can especially see this in regards to our breathing. Um, just look at what's happened to our teeth. You know, that is not an evolutionary adaptation to have chronically crooked teeth. 90% of the population has chronically crooked teeth. There's nothing about that that makes us faster or smarter or better. So evolution, I learned, means change. And so life can change for better or for worse. And in regards to our breathing, it's changed so much so for, for the worse. Because to that point, I've had a lot of dental work, as you'll be able to see from the video call. And I always thought that our teeth were things that hadn't evolved um, to straighten. But actually, when you talk about going back and looking at those skulls, you're like, mm, teeth used to be straight hundreds of years ago. Yeah. And, and anyone who doubts this, and I certainly doubted this when I first heard it from these biological anthropologists that I was interviewing, they said, why don't you look at a picture of, of any ancient skull? And it doesn't matter if the skull is 500 years old, 5,000 years old, 50,000 years old, 500,000 years old. You can just keep going back. It's going to have straight teeth. And then look at the 5,400 different mammals on the planet, mammals in, in, in the wild, and they're all going to have straight teeth. And then you look at modern humans, 90% of us have some sort of problems with our teeth. So... That, to me, really proved it. I was able to go and look at ancient skulls. You can see how weird my day job was, was getting there. Um, with these experts in these museums. And they were 100% right. It was bizarre to see a skull that was 2,000 years old, you know, 3,000 years old, with these perfectly straight teeth. No wisdom teeth extracted. No Invisalign. No braces. They didn't need it. And neither did any of our other ancestors and neither do any of the other mammals in the wild right now. So it's, it's stunning. Uh, once you learn that you can't unsee it. And, and whenever I look at, you know, an, an animal in the wild or, or an old skull, which is semi often as strange as that is, uh, I'm looking at its teeth and they're straight.
Now, before we go excavating, may we take a few steps back? And would you mind explaining how, um, would you call it a fascination with breath? Or was it just that there were a couple of things that you heard that were almost like a loose thread and you just started pulling? How did this interest really capture you? Well, it started so many years ago when um, I had had braces, I had extractions, wisdom teeth, extract headgear and all, all that stuff. So, you know, whether or not that was correlated to my respiratory problems remains to be seen. Um, but I have always concentrated on eating healthy, on exercising a lot constantly. Um, I consider myself pretty health oriented, but I was having all of these breathing issues. I was getting light grade pneumonia year after year, bronchitis, some wheezing, even though I was, I was fit, I was working out all the time, but I was still having these problems. And a doctor recommended I go to a breathing class. And I went to this breathing class. This was several years ago and had just this very weird experience that she couldn't explain that no one in the medical field could explain. And what happened is, uh, now, now I understand more of what happened, but I sat, I went to this, this pranayama breathing class and sat in the corner and crossed my legs. And 10 minutes later of just breathing in this, in this rhythmic pattern, I sweated through my socks, through my t-shirt, my hair was wet. Other people saw it. So this wasn't just something that I imagined, but I didn't know what to do with that experience. I wasn't going to write a memoir or anything. So several years went by and I just sort of put it in the back file, but it was really until I met free divers, these people who were able to hold their breath for seven, eight, nine minutes at a time, uh, that I really learned the power and potential of breathing. So that really opened the door for me. And was it at that point understanding that there had been this sort of step back in evolution as opposed to step forward, that it was possible to breathe incorrectly? When did that sort of part of the puzzle come into your, uh, come into the equation for you? rather late and i wish it had come in earlier it would have saved me so many months of of work so i had thought that i had this the the breathing world pretty well figured out because that's what you do in nonfiction. you write a proposal then they send you out you know for a few years to write the book so i wrote this proposal i said oh i have this figured out got all the experts in the field i know what areas i'm going into but had no idea that so many of us were breathing incorrectly, not just for psych because of psychological issues, but because of anatomical issues, because our faces have grown so flat and our mouths have grown so small. So I discovered that probably, I mean, if we're talking from, from current date, maybe three and a half years ago, and it completely blew my mind. And I had to get rid of so much of the research I'd been doing and to go down that path because you have to first recognize and understand what the problem is before you can fix it. And so that's what I tried to do. Well, that's one of the things I was going to ask. Like originally, was there a hypothesis? Was there a, I'm going to set out to prove X, Y, or Z, and this is how I'm going to do it. And it sounds like that journey kind of took a bit of a zigzag. Yeah, there, there was absolutely not. And, and one of the pleasures I have of, of my job as a journalist is I don't set out and to take sides on anything, right? I have zero slant on anything. It's of no benefit to me to have one breathing technique work and the other one not work because I'm not invested in that. Uh, my job is to go out and find find the truth and talk to the experts in the field. So I just talked to as many people as I could from Harvard, from Stanford, breathing therapists, people who have treated themselves with breathing. And this story came together that way, much more organically. So even though I had at the beginning thought I had a good plan on how I was going to tackle the subject, all of that was destroyed the deeper and the weirder this research got. So I just kept going in, going in deeper into these other areas and letting the story sort of subsume me and then came out the other side and, and wrote about it. Because one of the things uh, regular listeners of this podcast will know, I'm a big fan of evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what you were looking into, there are many labs, there are many pulmonary experts who I'm sure could weigh in on this. But then you also have the other aspect of the research, which is the more holistic or spiritual side of things. And I mean, to me, that just, when I started thinking about the breadth of 
information that you would have to collate in order to make sense of it all and sort of tie everything together and see if one thing proves the other or vice versa. It really, it really felt like an overwhelming task. Yeah, and it it really was. I mean, this this book almost almost killed me if I didn't have some breathing techniques to rely on. But but I I think you're right. I don't think those two things necessarily have to be so opposed, though. Um, the holistic approach, the approach from therapists, and the approach from science. You know what what I I knew that nobody was going to believe this stuff unless I had it so supported with science from experts in the field. So everything that that I wrote about here, there are 520 references at the back of the book if anyone wants to see the studies. But but and and various doctors read read this book and and it checked out. But I think that, you know, clinicians are on the front line. They're they're the people teaching patients how to do this and they're seeing its benefits but none of that means anything if it's just subjective if these patients are like hey i breathe you know i feel better and i don't know why but it works for me in medicine that doesn't work so luckily so much of breathing can be measured and if we can measure it we can study it and if we can study it we can find out whether or not it works and so that's why i spent so much time in the labs you'd hear these stories of these people saying I had asthma for 30 years. I cured myself by breathing properly. I had autoimmune issues for 20 years. I cured myself. Th these are huge claims. And until you really see the evidence and the data, I wouldn't believe them. But I went, you know, went in deep, found the people studying this stuff uh, at top institutions around the world. And shockingly, so much of it was true. And it's not a case of there isn't a sort of magic bullet of you can say two or three sentences now and tell me how to how to stop breathing incorrectly and how to breathe correctly. But what you did, I don't think there is anyway. I'm about to. <laughs> well, there's there's a foundation of healthy breathing habits, and that that's what I tried to do in the in the book is start off with okay, here's what's happened to our evolution, which is bizarre. And this is why we have crooked teeth. And this is why we get tooth extractions. And this is why we're not breathing properly. Because if you have a mouth that's too small for your face that the teeth don't fit in, you're going to have a smaller airway. If you have a smaller airway, your chances of snoring, sleep apnea, breathing problems all increase. So it's, it's simple physics, you know, it's geometry. Um, but but the foundation and the middle of the book was was based on this. It's like, hey, here are these things that anyone can do. And they've been shown to have a huge impact, huge benefit for anyone. They're accessible to anyone. And so once you start with that, with that solid foundation, then you can start looking at your specific problem and start addressing it more directly. And you were, uh, you were a guinea pig. You did the, I mean, I, I found some of the retelling of the experiments that you did with, is it Olsen? Mm -hmm. Where you were both had like, at some points you had your noses blocked so that you could only mouth breathe and then vice versa. Would you mind talking me through that a little bit? Because that sounded intense, but also revelatory. Yeah, it was, it was awful. And I had <laughs> never set out to do this. And, and that's what people have a hard time you know, getting their heads around is like, oh, obviously this was part of your plan to do this in the book. It never was. And and I never wanted to do it. But after talking with so many experts for so long and finding that there were gaps in our understanding of breathing, I thought, well, someone should do this. And like, if I can write about it, then that's great. And we can start pushing this ball forward more. So that came about the specific uh, study you're mentioning came about because I was talking with Dr. Jayakar Nayak, uh, the chief of rhinology research at Stanford. So who knows more about the nose and the benefits of nasal breathing than probably anyone on earth. And he was telling me over one of our many interviews that mouth breathing, mouth breathing was so bad for us. Um, it causes respiratory problems. We get less oxygen. It you know, blood pressure goes up on and on and on. All of that was known, but no one knew how quickly that damage came on. And I said, well, why don't we 
be tested. And he's like, how? It would be unethical for me to ask people to do this because I know it's going to mess them up. So I said, well, I'll, I'll do it and I'll get someone else. So it's not just an N1 study, it's an N2 study, which would be a lot more powerful. So that's what we did. Ten, ten days, we breathed only through our mouths, which was as awful as that sounds. And luckily for 10 days, we tried to breathe only through our noses. So we wore a little piece of tape. And, uh, and the data, I think, really speaks for itself. Because it was, as you said, horrific when you were only breathing through your mouth. And actually, since I read the book, I have become so uh, acutely aware of when I'm mouth breathing. And I used to run a lot. And whenever I exercise, I tend to mouth breathe. I only realized after I read this book. So now when I'm like in the depths of exercise, like heart rates at 160 and I'm really going for it, I really make an effort now to breathe through my nose. Yeah. And you, you and everyone else, you know, is, is mouth breathing. And, and that's why we did this study. It's not like uh, this was some supersize me stunt. It's 25 to 50 percent of the population habitually breathes through their mouths. So what we were doing was just gauging what mouth breathing does to you if it becomes a habit. Um, and, and so the, the first thing that we noticed was our sleep just plummeted. I had not been snoring before this. We took baseline data for, for weeks. Uh, we suddenly started snoring. We suddenly got sleep apnea. We were fatigued. Our endurance went down. Um, my blood pressure went through the roof, went up about 15 points, <laughs> you know, just, just by breathing through your mouth. And, and again, this was stuff that had been studied, but no one had looked at individually how quickly it came on. And we found it came on within a day, this, this damage started occurring. And I wish someone would do a larger scale study of this. Uh, no one will, I, I assure you, <laughs> but, uh, uh, it was interesting just to, you know, collect our own data. And we, we looked at our data three times a day. We were doing CO2 and O2, and I, I won't bore you with all the other markers. But but uh, the, the problem is, it's like even with people when they are nasal breathing at, at rest in front of their computer or whatever, immediately when they start exercising, they start mouth breathing because they say, I'm not getting enough oxygen. And most of the time, that is completely false. You are getting more oxygen through your nose, your nose just needs to be conditioned at those rates of exercise. And the benefits, the athletic benefits for performance and for recovery are astounding once you breathe through your nose. So yeah, so they can hear me do it now. I'm just thinking <laughs> so, so much about not mouth breathing. Um, I have had Andy Puddigam on this podcast uh, from Headspace before. And so we've talked at length on the show uh, about the uh, impact of breathing. So mouth breathing and nose breathing is one thing, but uh, what about depth and duration of breathing? Because all I'm going to say is since I read the book, I just keep thinking 5.5. <laughs> and that's a good place to start off with. You know, I'm the point isn't to make you more stressed out or, or more ashamed of your breathing. It's to, <laughs> it's to allow you to feel what these different techniques do so that after a while they become a habit. You know, so many of us are accustomed to breathing a certain way and that certain way is usually improper or inadequate. What I mean by that is a lot of us just breathe into our chest and we breathe way too much, too many times per minute. But by lengthening those breaths, by just pushing the diaphragm, the diaphragm is the thing that sits underneath your lungs that lowers when you inhale and then rises when you exhale. So by engaging that diaphragm more, you are significantly reducing the burden on the heart, which is one of the reasons why blood pressure will go straight down. You're allowing all the functions of your body to operate more normally and you're entering a more relaxed state. So this is how the body wants to function. It doesn't want to be, which is what so many people do so often. And, and this has been very well researched. So that 5.5 is a great, and what, what uh, I'll, I'll just fill in a bit what you're referring to. Um, researchers were looking at what the optimum breathing pattern might be, and they actually found this in prayer. So uh, when you recite the Ave Maria in Latin, it takes about five and a half to six seconds 
to recite a phrase, and then you have about five and a half to six seconds to, to inhale. And that same pattern occurs in the Buddhist chant, Omani Padmiham, or the Om, or Satanama, on and on and on. And these researchers believed that these prayers developed to help people breathe in this certain way because it was so healing. So you don't you don't need to to breathe to have this um, to have these benefits. But um, sorry, I just uh, my my uh, I, I don't know if you're going to cut that out. My I, did you hear the telephone go go on there? Uh- I didn't. I didn't. Oh, God. Okay. Sorry. I had That's a okay. screen on my computer. Anyway, so you don't need to to pray to get these benefits. You can pray if you want, and that's great. But just by breathing, this very low rate, this five and a half to six seconds in, five and a half to six seconds out, you put your body into this state of, of synchrony and coherence where everything is working just the way it's supposed to be. And this has been extensively studied. Anyone can do it, and it's free. And this is something that I was just before we jumped on the call, I was, I checked social media because unfortunately I'm addicted to Instagram. What can I tell you? Mm -hmm. And there's this real fetishization at the moment of Karen culture. And there's lots of, you know, do you know what I mean by that? Of just like people screaming and being misbehaving. Yeah. I'm in the U S so I I see it all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So um, Michael Rappaport posted someone screaming about face masks and Trader Joe's in Hollywood. And there's this kind of thing I keep seeing it all the time and it makes me quite stressed. So obviously I don't um, try not to engage with it, but I watched this particular video and I thought, well, I'm speaking to James in a minute. And I wonder if there's something to be said about the fact that we're all breathing so badly that we're all in uh, flight or fright the entire time. And we are unable to process somebody saying to us, would you mind wearing a mask, ma'am? And then we, you know, go apoplectic and start throwing shopping out of the out of the cart and calling people names. Like, I mean, is this a what I'm basically trying to say is I feel like if we're all going backwards with breathing, are we actually doing ourselves like is it is it that bigger picture? Like if we all just if someone came over and said, just breathe, honey. Five in, five out. Would we see less of that, do you think? Everything, you know, is very stressful now. And so obviously that that's going to wear off on us and, and make us more stressed. But we do know that through various studies, by adjusting your breathing, you can adjust your nervous system. And by adjusting your nervous system, you can place your body and mind in different states. So They've done uh, a bunch of studies, again, with with panic and asthma and found that these attacks are preceded by improper breathing. And by that, I mean by people breathing too much and by allowing people to slow down their breathing. You can try that five seconds in, five or six seconds out. You can increase the amount of carbon dioxide in your bloodstream, which will open up your capillaries, which will calm your body down. Um, And this is so important because it allows you to take better control of your thoughts because you're taking better control of your body. Those two things are obviously intimately connected. So, you know, everyone can benefit from this. It is free and there's, there's reams of science to back it up. Yeah. And because I think modern living, there was a a phrase in the book that was just um, this extended state of extreme sympathetic stress, Um, just that modern life can just trigger. Yeah. If you if you look around at the number of people, we were constantly in the state of low grade stress where we're never running away from a tiger um, or, or needing to fight someone who's attacking us or, or not very often, but we're never really relaxed either. So this is so damaging to the body to stay in this state of alert the whole time, which is why so many people have problems sleeping, which is why you're so tired in the daytime, which is why you're so irritable all the time. This, this low-grade stress, and you can look at all of these different diseases that are, have been correlated to having this constant low grade stress, even, you know, from cancer, hypertension, of course, even, uh, types of diabetes, type one diabetes, autoimmune function on and on and on. So the, the key is really, if you're going to be stressed, be extremely stressed for a short amount of time, but the vast majority of your time 
you need to be in that rest and relaxed state because this is how we evolved not to be constantly stressed in a low grade level but to really go for it and then to chill out and that's and that's how the body is going to be able to operate um, best it's interesting isn't it because i think um when I was discussing this with some friends, we were talking about what, what does relaxation look like to you? And none of us talked about breathing. Mm -hmm. We talked about, oh, it might be sitting down and watching Netflix with popcorn or watching a movie or reading a book. And none of us actually said, and whilst doing that, I will be breathing slowly and through, <laughs> through my nose. Well, the the great thing about breathing is you can do that while watching Netflix. You can do that while while reading a book. You can do it while walking. I mean, we're breathing 25,000 times a day. And to take control of some of those breaths is going to have a really profound benefit for so many people. I mean, if you place your hand right now on your heart and you breathe in to a count of about three and then breathe out to a count of about eight or ten, you're going to feel your heart rate slowing down. So that's not a placebo effect. That is your body reacting to exhaling longer than it's inhaling, which stimulates a powerful parasympathetic response. That's the rest and relax response. So just by extending your exhales at night, you are going to chill yourself out. And again, this isn't subjective. This is a, a physiological mechanism that we can stimulate, it's like breathing allows us to access these different levers in our body to use them for different purposes. Now, if you wanna get pumped up and excited, you've got a big interview or something, you wanna get activated, you can inhale more than you're exhaling or you can start inhaling, exhaling faster. So your heart rate's gonna go up and you're gonna get that sympathetic response. So to me, breathing, it's, it's this, amazing tool and to have more tools in your tool toolbox is great to know these different aspects and benefits of these different breathing practices allows you to become hyper efficient in the different areas in which you're working now um regular listeners will may be thinking when you were talking just then about the conversation i had with dr andrew weil on the podcast mm -hmm. where he talked about breathing and he talks about the four seven eight breath mm -hmm. And he says, and I, I believe I'm quoting him here correctly, where he says, essentially, if you do that, you practice four rounds of that um, twice a day, it's more effective than uh, some anti-anxiety medication. And then he talked about um, the effect on blood pressure and what have you. So it's just, it's backed up by some of the best. Oh, yeah, he's been, his work's great. And he said, if there was one piece of advice he would give someone, it's to breathe properly, period that that's that's the start you know breathing needs to be considered right along with what you're eating and and your exercise regimen it it has to because you can eat right and you can exercise but you will never be healthy unless your breathing is really tuned up and and we're we're finding this we've been finding this for for decades and it's finally just starting to come out you know he's much more into the the, the relaxation effects of breathing, but I've found there's profound benefits of breathing on the other side of that too. By that, I mean the Wim Hof breathing, Tumo breathing, Pranayama, Kriyas. Um, and these are designed to activate the body to stress it out so specifically so that you can maintain control of that stress, be able to turn it on and to turn it off. And I think that that's pretty fascinating too that we're able to control our nervous systems just by breath well we, we are going to come on to Wim because I okay. do an 11 an 11 minute round with him and it's the greatest entertainment as well as gives you the most incredible feeling because obviously mm -hmm. Wim Hof is just a character but I just wanted to touch on what you said there about you can eat right and you can exercise but if you're not breathing properly it kind of it doesn't it's not going to add up to what you want it to add up to and the thing that the thing that you can't do with breathing that you can do with exercise and eating is monetize it. Well, that's that's one of the reasons I, I think that it hasn't been fully investigated to the level that it should be. And this is something I've heard from so many doctors. My my father-in-law is a pulmonologist. So he's been a pulmonologist for what, 30, 40 years, top of his field. And this is exactly what he told me. He's like, well, no one's studying this because you can't make make money off of this, you know, putting a little piece of tape on your lips 
to help abate snoring and sleep apnea, who's going to make money off of that? Um, so, so he looked at all the science here and he said, all of this checks out. And luckily right now we're at this time in which. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everything's getting turned around, right? And, and people are angry that we've been lied to so often. I mean, just, just look at what happened with, with food. How long were we told that this high sugar, high carb food was good for us? Here's your bowl of Cheerios or, or Captain Crunch. And, and like, that's a good breakfast. And, and I think our, our realization that so much of what we've been told, especially in the U.S., was complete garbage, is now extending into other areas of medicine, which is why wellness is, is such this huge industry, because people have found they're, they're looking for other answers to help fix their chronic problems. And from what I've found is breathing is an absolutely can be transformative for people if they really focus it and get it down right and if someone's listening to this and they're thinking okay i'm sold i want to start breathing properly um what would be your first resource for them i think and you know this is how i set up the chapters in the in the book is you first have to understand that it's not all about inhaling it's about exhaling too because if you can't exhale properly you're not gonna be able to take that full inhale in so you should be breathing slowly and you should be breathing a lot less than you think you you need to be and i know that seems counterintuitive to so be, so many people to say how am i going to get enough oxygen in but as you know from reading the book that's not what it's all about we've got plenty of ox people who are healthy have plenty of oxygen in our bodies we just need to offload it in the most efficient way so you know, for people with, with severe problems, there are breathing therapists. Patrick McEwen um, in Ireland is world-renowned breathing therapist. Amazing guy doing great stuff. Anders Olsen in Scandinavia is great too. But what, what I've found is just by adopting some simple practices at the beginning, creating that foundation will allow you to then go off into different directions to explore Wim Hof breathing or Tumo or Pranayama. And so Wim Hof, because you actually went, did you, you went and practiced and actually got the full Wim Hof experience? I, yeah, they're one of his, his first uh, U.S. trained in, instructors um, is here in Northern California, because of course he is, because we're all weirdos up here. Um, and, and he, th this guy was incredible. His, his story is what really convinced me. To want to do a larger interview because there's been other books on whim there's been documentaries i said you know he's out there and i think what he's doing is is amazing like he's brought breathing awareness to millions of people what a great thing but oh, sorry go ahead no he's hit the mainstream because um he was actually featured in the video for the uk's eurovision song contest entry which I know you're maybe Eurovision hasn't really <laughs> hit the American consciousness yet, but that <laughs> when I saw that, I thought, okay, yeah, he's gone mainstream. Well, he's because what he's doing has been studied. You know, he's been doing it for so long, just grinding away, and was so frustrated that no one was taking him seriously. And now, top labs have taken him in and and shown what he's doing has this profoundly therapeutic effect right now he's 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 being studied at university of california san francisco about two miles away from me his methods are for anxiety and arthritis so i met this guy chuck who had had been uh, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in his 30 30s which is extremely rare he had depression anxiety chronic pain you name it was on a cocktail of different drugs high blood pressure on and on and no one was helping him he was getting worse and worse every year and he discovered whim and within a few weeks his blood pressure had gone so low that he stopped all medication he was no longer anxious no longer depressed his he was taking 80 percent less in insulin i mean transformative effect and so he was he 
deals a lot with people who have autoimmune issues because diabetes, arthritis, this is all tied to our immune system going rogue against our bodies. So I learned the breathing technique from him and uh, he he showed me the ropes and uh, it's it's something now every Monday for free, he runs these, these free Zoom uh, breathing sessions for anyone who wants to join at 9 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. And I do it at least uh, once a week. I, I practice that breathing technique. It's extraordinary how it can have such a massive, massive impact. And I think Wim, I mean, a little bit of his story. I've listened to him mm -hmm. on a couple of podcasts and it's always entertaining. But I mean, he's been injected with various uh, cultures and then he's gone and like sat at the top of a mountain. And wasn't he, didn't he get into a bath of ice for nearly two hours and didn't show any signs of hypothermia and he just kept his body warm and nourished and safe just through breath yeah and, and people had had told him repeatedly that what he was doing was impossible even though there's a history which, which i thought was so fascinating um that pe monks have been using breathing to stay warm for at least a thousand years and one of the initiations for a monk is to go out for Buddhist monk is to go out into the snow overnight and melt a circle of ice around their body uh, just by breathing and then come back into the monastery and get on with the day, which of course sounds impossible until so many of these stories had shown up that a Harvard researcher in the eighties went out to India and found these monks and measured what happened to their bodies when they breathe this way. And he'd never seen anything like it. The videotape is, is you can search it on YouTube and see it if you don't believe me, even though it was written about in Nature, one of the top scientific journals of, you know, in the world. But these people were able to take control of their nervous system so much so that they were able to superheat their bodies and dry a wet sheet on their back in a, in a frigid room. Um, and they were able to increase the temperature in their extremities by, by 17 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, just by breathing. So Wim took this breathing modality and brought it to the Western world and said, look, look what I can do. And, and he sat in an ice bath for two hours. His core temperature did not go down, no frostbite, no hypothermia, no anything. And all the scientists have been scratching their heads ever since. They said, what he's done is counter to what we've learned about the human body. And what they found now is Wim isn't just a complete freak of nature. I mean, maybe he is, but other people who have done this have been trained to breathe in this certain way and can do what he is doing. So it's really open to anyone who wants to do it, which I think is so fascinating to acknowledge that the human body is so much more magnificent, has so much more potential than we give it credit for. I think that's the thing is you sort of realizing that you can tap into something that you didn't even know was there, like the room of requirement in Harry Potter. But so uh, with Wimps, he's got this, he has an app, but there's also an 11 minute video on YouTube. And I go for a long walk in the morning uh, on the weekends and I sit on a bench and I do this route, these rounds of breathing and you feel unbelievable afterwards. There's absolutely no way you can say, there's nothing in this. There's just no way. Well, th this is what's amazing about the, the modern days, this medical equipment to measure these different physiological changes in your body. It's really cheap now. It used to be really expensive 30 years ago, but you can get a pulse oximeter. You can get a heart rate variability sensor. You can watch what breathing does to your body, how instantly this change occurs. So not only do you feel great, is this stuff is supported by science and by data, which to me makes it that much more important. Don't, don't get me wrong, feeling great, you know, the subjective measure is very important, but if it isn't supported by science, then it may not appeal or, or be able to, to be considered as legit by so many other people. And it really, it, it has those two things. And I have that same feeling every time I do Wim's version of, of Tumo, I just, I can sleep so well um, and if I do it a little faster, I am so energized. And this is, there's no placebo in this. This is a strong physiological reaction you're having to inhaling and exhaling in this certain way. 
a few years ago i was struggling badly with anxiety and so i uh, used to meditate a lot and i would use the apps to help me and i definitely used to feel that if i woke up in the morning and i was already at an eight if i meditated i'd come down to like a four or a three and then i you know the day would therefore be a lot better i would be less likely to be a karen <laughs> in my in my life <laughs> Um, but what I find with uh, the breathing exercise is if I wake up and I feel a bit flat because maybe I haven't slept very well or whatever the reason, it, it really psychs, it, uh, psychs you up in a brilliant way, makes you feel oh, the day is going to be my bitch for want of a better word. <laughs> but equally, if you do it later on in the day, it does that thing of, it, sorry, James. No, it I'm, cr I'm cracking you. up. I'm, yeah. <laughs> It's just even talking about Wim Hof just makes me get all, you know, up in my feelings. But then later on in the day, it 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 has that sort of balancing ability. So yeah, there is absolutely something in it. But one of the things I wanted to talk to you about as well is because you mentioned about, you know, breathing, quickly breathing before a big interview or something. One thing I'm really bad at, or uh, it's a bad habit, is that if I'm stressed, I will catch myself not breathing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, before I record any podcast, because I obviously want the podcast to go well, I, for about an hour beforehand, I have to think really carefully and make sure that I'm breathing in and breathing out. Because I'll find myself just breathing very, my breath is very shallow or I'm even holding my breath and I'm not even realizing I'm doing it. And that's not uncommon, is it? So one estimate is that 80% of us experience this called email apnea um and and it has many names that's that's one of them um it's also called continuous partial um oh man i forget the rest of it not important partial, partial attention syndrome that's that's it so what what this is is when we are sitting down at our computers and we've got our phones open we got instagram on you know got our email on about ready to take a call. Our attention is all over the place, but it's not on one thing in particular. So we lose track of how we're breathing. And sometimes the body is stressed out. And so what do we do when we're stressed? If you imagine the, the human, you know, 4,000 years ago, you know, when, when you're scared, a reaction is to hold your breath because that, that way you're silent. So we have this, we're so oversensitized to anxiety and to, to threats, even if it's a quote threat from an email that we tend to hold our breath. And I was doing this so much. I started recording myself with a uh, pulse oximeter to see, to watch as my oxygen went down from holding my breath. And I didn't feel like I was stressed out. I didn't feel threatened, but there was something going on in my brain, my nervous system that was that was stimulating this, this breath holding. And then I found that the vast majority of us do it. So what you, what you're doing before the interviews is exactly that sort of constant attention to your breathing. And, and once you notice these faults in your breathing to, to absolve them, to, to fix them and, and to breathe slower and deeper is going to allow you so much more access to oxygen and to be able to perform so much better than to yeah. And, and, you know, if, if you're a weirdo like me, you can start recording how you're breathing throughout the day. And I found like it was so dysfunctional. My, my breathing was, even though I was eating right, even though I was exercising all the time, my breathing was way off and I still have a long way to go, but I think I've gotten a lot better than I was. But then there's a different kind of breath holding, which actually isn't so bad and because you did a lot of I spent a lot of time with free divers and I've always been fascinated by free divers mm -hmm. I just think it's incredible people who can not only hold their breath for what eight to nine minutes but they can dive very deep so there's a hell of a lot of pressure on their bodies uh, what did you learn from what did you learn about free diving about breathing from free divers they were really the the doorway into this this world is seeing how they were able to will themselves to hold their breath for so long and to dive so deep. And these, these people weren't like superhumans, right? They were just like me and you. Some of them were, were tall. Some of them were short. Some of them were large, skinny, whatever. Like 
every imaginable shape and form of, of our species, but through the power of will and by breathing, they were able to change the physical structures of their bodies to greatly expand their lung capacity and do something that was considered scientifically impossible. And it was through them that they said, oh, you know, once you really learn this art of breathing, you can not only use it to dive deep into free dive, you can use it to heal the body. You can use it for athletic performance. You can use it for all of these other things. And, and that's when, you know, I, I really started diving deep into the pun not intended in, into that world and, and seeing the potential of, of breathing. But free diving is, and I saw it in my own body. I, I learned how to free dive my, myself and saw what an incredible power this is. And, Humans have been doing this for at least 10,000 years. We, we have archaeological evidence showing we've been doing this for 10,000 years. And man, I just think, uh, you know, to we've been selling ourselves too short for, for too long um, that we're able to do these incredible things if we really allow ourselves to. Um, and so was it when you were with the freedivers? Because I obviously doing research into you found out about the work you were doing uh, with sperm whales. Was it while you were with the free divers that you were you in the ocean and you spotted a sperm whale and that's how that side of uh, your research uh, continued? Well, that was one of the great benefits of free diving. It wasn't just by diving deep or diving deeper than than your friend. It was that it allowed you to explore the underwater environment in this silent and natural way and become part of it because when you have scuba on when you're in a boat you are disturbing the environment it's like one, one free diver told me it's scuba is like you know showing up underwater with a a, a, a weed blower or a weed whacker or a lawnmower it's so loud and disturbing to all of the life around there but free diving silent so you're able to approach sharks or dolphins or whales in this very peaceful way. And oftentimes they'll welcome you into their pods and you have these absolutely bizarre and wonderful experiences. So that's why I wanted to learn how to free dive, to be able to approach these animals on their terms in their environment in this very natural and peaceful way. And, and it works. I can, I can say I went diving with, with sperm whales, which are the size of a school bus of eight inch long teeth. And, there was, it was probably the, you know, one of the most powerful experiences I've, I've had in my life. And I saw your TED talk as well, where um, obviously the population of sperm whales, I think has been reduced by 70%. They, they get hunted. Uh, there are certain places that still want to hunt them. But if, and I think you're going to explain this better than me, but essentially if we can, if you can prove that the clicks that they use to communicate are actually a language will have a much greater case for saying no no they're talking to each other they are sentient beings let's let's not harpoon them i would i would certainly hope so the the sad thing is we know this click communication is communication we know it's extremely sophisticated we know that sperm whales have a brain six times larger than our own that is in many ways more complex they've had this brain for 50 million years you know animals don't grow a big brain like that by accident there are other animals that are huge like the whale shark that has a teeny brain the size of your fist so sperm whales are incredibly intelligent they share so many other human characteristics of in regards to culture, it's matriarchal units in which they raise their young. I mean, on and on and on. So there are these amazing animals. Uh, we know they're talking to one another. We don't know what they're saying. And so luckily, I was able to get in contact with marine scientist David Gruber, who's a National Geographic explorer, very well-connected, smart dude. And for the past several years, with and Gruber has been the one leading this thing entirely. I've just been playing backup and helping him out where where he needed help with. But um, we finally launched uh, last week. We won the TED Audacious Prize for 2020, and um, things are are booting up now to start one of the largest scale uh, research studies into a, a mammal, and that is the sperm whale, and that is into its communication. 
Well, well, congratulations. That's amazing. (laughs) And also, I don't know about you, but I've always found it really bonkers that we know more about space than we do about the ocean and like basically what's between us now and the Earth's core. Because that's true. That's true fact, isn't it? We know less about the actual planet we're on than we do about the, the sky and space around us. It, yeah, and this just shows human culture, you know, <laughs> the, the bad side of human culture. We, we only want what we can't have. So we keep, you know, now people talk, let's colonize Mars. Let's figure out a way of nuking Mars, changing its atmosphere. There might be life on Mars. Oh, oh my God. Well, we don't even know half the species in the ocean. And, and so many of them are disappearing. And the idea that we need to look into space in order to possibly have communication with a non-human species, although there's already intelligent non-human species that we know are communicating in the ocean right now, and we don't bother to look at them, I think is absolutely ridiculous. Um, And there's so much we can learn from these animals that have been around for so much longer than us, that have been great stewards of their environment that I think if if we were able to crack into this thing, and luckily we've got the top machine learning scientists from MIT, from Harvard, from, I mean, all over the Imperial College in the UK working on this thing now. If we were able to actually crack into this, I would like to think that this might be the paradigm shift we need to start appreciating our planet a little more. And I think, isn't it something like there's hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on various uh, projects to do with space and space exploration. And yeah, you just think, follow that towards the ocean. Yeah. And it's right there. You don't have to take a spaceship into it. You know, you can free dive. You can, that's what's even more amazing. You can focus on your breath and use your own natural body to conduct this research in this different atmosphere, which is the ocean, which is as wild and wondrous as anything in space, in my opinion. Um, you're a journalist, as we've discussed, and um, I don't know how long were you working before you stumbled across this? Oh, well, I had written a book called Deep Freediving Renegade Science and What the Ocean Tells Us About Ourselves. And, and that's when I met these freedivers. And that was that book came out about five years ago. So I had been working on that for, for a couple of years, had a really quick turnaround on that one. So all of these freedivers that I had met, I had, and their stories, I just shelved, you know, until I got started with, with this book, Breath. But I started in, in journalism very late in the game. I had, I was a very respectable citizen of, of the planet for a while with a good corporate job and some nice suits and, you know, house and all that stuff. Um, and then I, I switched gears. Uh, I, I wrote stories in my free time at, at night away from my job, just cause I absolutely loved it. I loved going into these worlds and learning about them and finally cut the cord, but, but very, very late in the game. I wish I would have done it earlier, but I didn't. And you know, that's how it is, but I'm, I'm glad I'm here now. The reason I ask is because, uh, I have a lot of friends who are journalists who stumble or not necessarily stumble, but they are drawn towards something that ends Mm -hmm. up becoming life changing and they begin to explore it and become expert in it. And they, as a consequence, end up changing other people's lives. And I wonder if that's how you feel about what's happened with you. I think that's the greatest compliment that any any author or journalist can get when you feel so passionate about something and you've seen it change people around you and then to be able to put that knowledge together in a way that allows other people to to better their lives. I, it's just it's the most wonderful thing and I've gotten so many you know hundreds of emails from people a little bitter at the beginning saying, why haven't I heard of this stuff before? <laughs> why hasn't my doctor been telling this? But at the end, you know, just in a few days saying, I feel completely different. You know, my blood pressure is going down. My asthma is starting to disappear. And and that to me is what it's, what it's all about, really. Uh, I, I think that, you know, maybe this was a job that, that other organizations could have been doing or should have been doing, but that's not the reality now. So I think journalists are are taking up this this job of, of really policing what's going on and, and trying to change policy and trying to show in real scientific, you know, backed ways and in, in objective ways 
um, different ways to to improve our lives and improve the planet. So I know that that sounds really highfalutin. I'm, I didn't mean it to to sound like that. I, I just um, I I think it's a total privilege for me to to be able to pursue research subjects that I'm obsessed with and fascinated with, and, and to find that other other people are interested in them in, in, as well. It's extraordinary. And a lot of books come across my desk. I um, get a lot of, you know, press releases about various books that are coming out and authors. And this was without a shadow of a doubt. I remember I read it and then I was FaceTiming with my family as we're doing at the moment in lockdown. And I just, everything I said was, oh, and there's this thing in the book and there's this thing. It really is extraordinary that one of the most um, valuable things you can do for yourself understand and potentially if required change your breathing it's in plain sight it's accessible to you right now and there will be benefits from understanding it with without a shadow of a doubt like even me saying i'm aware that i hold my breath before mm -hmm. i do interviews i can change that now and that to me is what's what's great about it as well is how accessible it is it's it's one thing to have someone say you need to go 100% vegan now or you need to go 100% keto. That's a lifestyle change, right? And I'm not saying there aren't benefits to that. There's absolutely benefits to all of those those very specific diets. Or you now need to run six miles every day. Yes, there's benefits to that. But breathing is something we carry along with us throughout our entire lives. And so to know that we can be able to, to hone it and to improve it and and thus be able to to celebrate the benefits from that at any time it doesn't matter if you're young old whenever i i think is is fantastic and, and really exciting that we can take control of so much of our health just by taking control of our breath it's something i hadn't considered so the book was a real revelation and getting to spend some time chatting to you has been such a pleasure so thank you for sharing your experiences and your expertise because honestly it's been it's been so fascinating and I'm sure we could do a whole episode just on Wim Hof fangirling and fanboying out on him and various other things. Um, and you are welcome back anytime to talk about how the um, audacious, uh, the, the grant, the research is going. I would love to find out more about that and how it's going. But James, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation with James. If you want to get in touch with me, all you have to do is email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or you can slide into my DMs on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns and I'd love to hear from you. Or you can go to the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode and you can join the Facebook forum. Click the link, agree to the rules, answer some questions and we'll welcome you in with open arms. Now, don't forget, as I told you at the start of the show, there's a very special clip, audio, clip from James's book Breath the Science of a Lost Art and here it is for you to enjoy now. The patient arrived pale and torpid at 9:32 a.m. Male, middle-aged, 175 pounds. Talkative and friendly but visibly anxious. Pain? None. Fatigue? A little. Level of anxiety? Moderate. Fears about progression of future symptoms, high. Patient reported that he was raised in a modern suburban environment, bottle-fed at six months, and weaned onto jarred commercial foods. The lack of chewing associated with this diet stunted bone development in his dental arches and sinus cavities, leading to chronic nasal congestion. By age 15, patient was subsisting on even softer, highly processed foods, mostly white bread, sweetened juices, canned vegetables, steakums, Velveeta sandwiches, microwave taquitos, hostess snowballs, and Reggie bars. His mouth had become so underdeveloped it could not accommodate 32 permanent teeth. Incisors and canines grew in crooked. He required extractions, braces, retainers, and headgear. Three years of orthodontics made his small mouth even smaller, so his tongue no longer properly fit between his teeth. When he stuck it out, which he did often, visible imprints laced its sides, a precursor to snoring. At 17, four impacted wisdom teeth were removed, which further decreased the size of his mouth while increasing his chances of developing sleep apnea 
As he aged into his 20s and 30s, his breathing became more labored and dysfunctional, and his airways became more obstructed. His face would continue a vertical growth pattern that led to sagging eyes, doughy cheeks, and a sloping forehead. This atrophied, underdeveloped mouth, throat, and skull, unfortunately, belongs to me. I'm lying on the examination chair of the Stanford Otolaryngology Center. I'm looking at myself, looking into myself. For the past several minutes, Dr. Jayankar Nayak has been gingerly coaxing an endoscope camera through my nose. He's gone so deep into my head that he's come out the other side, into my throat. Say E, he says. Nayak has a halo of black hair, square glasses, and a white coat. But I'm not looking at his clothes or his face. I'm wearing a pair of video goggles that are streaming a live feed of the journey through the rolling dunes, marshes, and stalactites inside my severely damaged sinuses. I'm trying not to cough or choke or gag as the endoscope squirms a little further down. Say E, Nayak repeats. I say it and watch as the soft tissue around my larynx opens and closes like a stop-motion Georgia O'Keeffe flower. This isn't a pleasure cruise. Twenty-five sextillion molecules take the same voyage 18 times a minute, 25,000 times a day. I've come here to see, feel, and learn where all this air is supposed to enter our bodies. I've come to say goodbye to my nose for the next 10 days. <laughs>